It's the Breaking Atoms podcast where you break things down to the very last compound. My name is Summit, aka the Potty Mouth of the South. And my name is Chris Mitchell, aka the Actual Factual. Okay, so <sighs> New Year. Mm-hmm. We want to start the year right. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really glad we had Carl McIntosh on the Breaking Atoms podcast. Can I say something real quick? Uh-huh. Carl McIntosh is not a mere mortal. This is a conversation we've been wanting to have for years. Correct. And we're starting 2022 speaking to a musical deity. Genius, man. Yeah. Absolute yeah. genius. I'm still in shock. I genuinely, bro. I feel very emotional knowing that we spoke to Carl McIntosh for the length of time that we did. Same here. Same here. I'm in a bit of a somber mood, not, not through sadness. Just reflecting, like, that was a conversation you'll always remember. Like, yeah. So one of the first interviews I ever did in, I'm doing air quotes, as a, as a journalist, was Jazzy B, Soul to Soul. Right? And I really enjoyed that conversation because it's, it's Jazzy B, Soul to Soul. I know Loose Ends and, and, uh, and uh, Soul to Soul had their little um, competitive, uh, not beef, but their competitive thing back in the day, right? Um, but I was like, oh my God, I spoke to Jazzy B. That's the feeling I had after speaking to Carl McIntosh. And that was when I was early 20s. Right. And I'm like, you know, on the other side of, of my 30s. But you're still right. a music fan. Like, just the thing about the diamond and how Sly told him about the diamond spinning and keep the balance. That That's just like some musical, that is just like sound professor advice. Like, that's amazing. The artist's revenge, love it. And you could just see that Carl has so much there's so much coming out of him in terms of stories that someone else could, either we could do it or someone could pick it up and, and, and delve deeper into those stories yeah, there's more um, to come he's got he's got a lot more to offer both in music and in life and um, let's be a part of it well said well said but I won't um, I won't hold up anything more longer this is Carl McIntosh Breaking Atoms podcast check it out It's a special episode of the Breaking Atoms podcast. Boy, when I tell you we've got a pioneer in the building, boy, I can tell you have a pioneer in the building. Someone who has left some musical kids out here. Let's just say that, right? Some A, a lineage of, of, of artists still to this day, um, sampled by your favourites. Snoop, Rakim, work with Pete Rock. Like the list can go on and on, sugar-free. I could just go on and on and on. But there, Come on there is there is something incredible about our guest today, someone who absolutely has pioneered UK music and music in general. And, is, and we are not afraid to say we are absolute fans of this man, the one, the only, Carl McIntosh. Welcome to the Breaking Atoms podcast. How are you doing? Wow, you made me feel like the Beatles there. So <laughs> thank you so much. It's funny you say that because I know the Beatles are, are world-renowned, but you know we have our heroes, we have have our own Mount Rushmore in the world of music and your name is, is high. It's high on the list, man. If we, if you were here in front of us, oh, yeah, yeah. we could possibly end up bowing to you. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't <laughs> rule it out. It's very, no, it's very important. Like, you know, Kane's, uh, Kane, one of my favourite MCs of all time is Big Daddy Kane and the Mr. C remix. They sampled Loose Ends. Like, like you got to understand, like there's so much about what you've created where while we may not have been as, um, in, our, in terms of age, may not have been appreciated back then, we can go back and understand what you've contributed to music here. And so that's that's very important. Um, I want to start with, this is really weird because I've been watching this show called uh, People Just Don't Know Nothing, which is about Corrupt FM, a part radio station. But then it got me thinking about Pirate Radio uh, for you guys and, and how it impacted the success for for Loose Ends. Talk about the importance of of Pirate Radio to, to you guys back when you were early and the labels didn't have, have no idea what to do. Right. Well, we were going through a, um, a heavy um, bout of su suppression, of national radio suppression. Um, and, you know, the game is is very complicated. In the, in the music industry, it seems like, you know, the most popular song gets played and everyone loves a song and people go out and buy it. But actually, when you're in the game, you realize that that is not 
quite the case. I mean, even to get the, the song played on certain radio stations, it took us for us to get into the a blue cavalier and just drive up and down the country for maybe three, four weeks before the song came out. And then those, uh, what we would be doing would be turning up at radio stations and saying, hi, we're this new group called Loose Ends and we have a song and hopefully you'll talk to us for 15 minutes and then you'll play our song. And when you do that, um, like nearly every weekend, um, and I'm telling you, it was like, it starts Friday night, um, it goes, uh, Friday night you might do three or four Saturday all day you're doing like maybe 20 and then you might move up to Birmingham Newcastle and you just keep doing that until eventually the DJs actually know you but it's very tiring and it was you know it's really hard to keep oh hi I'm Carl McIntosh I'm from the group Lisa blah 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 and, it, and it, people don't know you so they're just being polite really but you do get an airplay out of them but as I said it's very tedious and takes long. And so all of a sudden, halfway through the 80s, Pirate Radio comes along. And we were lucky because we just came back from finishing our second album, our first album. It was the first album, I think it was. That's when it all started happening. And we record these albums in Philadelphia. So when we came back, we write them here, we record them in Philadelphia. When we came back, it was an amazing thing that happened because I think I was driving from the airport and I heard my song on the radio. So that is completely unfounded. I, you know, does this mean I don't have to go and sit in the Blue Cavalier? <laughs> but no, it didn't mean that. I had to go and sit in the Blue Cavalier for many years after. But it just meant that at that time period, there was a little window where radio stations were playing our music and without any request from us to do an interview. Um, and it was just great. And I remember, you know, um, there was it, it got a bit silly, actually, at one point, because I'd maybe hear my song 15, 20 times a day. And I'd be at someone's house and it would be on their pirate radio station or it, it was just crazy. I was famous without being famous. So we didn't have no hit records yet and we still weren't getting national airplay. But the popularity of the group was cultish now because people knew the group and uh, um, it was uh, the market that the record companies were trying to uh, break into. Suddenly they were just there and uh, it was very instant. Every um, radio station was now listening to the Pirates and they had this huge influence over national radio for a minute. And it was just a very special time because People that had these pirate radio stations had had enough of normal pop, uh, middle of the road, rock and roll, you know, westernized music. And they said, look, I think it started with the C CB radio um, and, and guys were just, you know, broadcasting from their CB. They put their, their deck and their bits and pieces next to the CB radio and then they, that would give them the broadcasting. And then they were just playing their records. and just went on from there. And I remember I used to live in Stoke Newington, I used to live in Clapton, Hackney, and that whole area was a bed of pirate radio every day. So it made me, you know, I have to say Loose Ends really benefited from it. It was a great time. Speaking of like hit records and, and fast forwarding slightly, hanging on a yeah. string, um, I really right. want to talk about the competitiveness that you had during the making of Hanging On A String? Because you became like, you start doing everything at that point. Like I'm playing bass, I'm playing guitar. I didn't have the guitar. I can... So talk about the competitiveness because <laughs> I think that's important as as musicians and artists now that what they're right. trying to do and, and how competitive you had to be just to be in the band still, right? So Right, right. So when I joined Loose Ends, I was just a, a bass player at first, but I was a songwriter and I had written many songs. I mean, um, slow, not slow down. Tell me what you want was written before I joined Loose Ends. Um, there's a few songs, Choose Me, Da 999. Um, I had these songs that, I mean, I had this imaginary affair with this girl that could sing in my school. Her name's Jean Addy Bambo. And she was a reggae lovers rock singer. And, um, you know, I was, oh, crushing on this girl. And eventually I put it to her and she said, nah. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> You're a bit short, you know, because she's like 5'10", 5'11". 
uh, at the time I was young, I was probably about five, eight or something. And she, you know, broke it down for me. So I went home that weekend and I wrote, choose me, da nine nine nine, come and rescue me. <laughs> you know, I was really in love, man. And it was, she shattered it. Anyway, luckily I met Jane and we could continue that. But um, I, I was writing songs, um, but I was still a bass player. So, or considered the bass player, but I was a guitarist. To be fair, I'm more of a guitarist than I'm a bass player um, because I was in a band called Uptown People, one of the first groups I was ever in. And in Uptown People, I had this great guitarist called Lawrence Stalibank. Now, I was a guitarist before I met him, but he played great guitar. Great, great, I mean, legendary. Left-handed, takes an ordinary right-handed guitar, turns it upside down like Hendrix. And, you know, he plays up. He plays with this beautiful strum because he uses his fingers and he's actually hitting the top notes first. So when you play a rhythm, it would sound like the JBs, you know, it would sound like this guy had it, you know. So I watched everything he did and I added it to my guitar skills, but it was inappropriate to use it then because I was the bass guy. So when I went into loose ends, I, I had these skills and little um, now and again, I would bring them out. Um, like if I got really mad, I'd pick up a guitar and start playing some stuff, you know, they'd be like, whoa. And when we get to um, America, we'd written Hanging on a String. I played the bass on it and uh, everything was nice. It was a weird song, actually, the demo. But Nick heard it and he said, hmm, let me do some changes to this. So the first thing that happened was Steve went in first in the studio when we was putting it down and he did the drum machine and the bass. And then I turn up at the studio with my bass and there was already bass on the record. So I'm like, oh, okay. So at first, you know, not trying to be awkward, it's all smiles and I'm sitting down and I'm rubbing my knees and I'm thinking, what do I do? I'm starting to feel a little bit upset about this because I feel like a bit of a lemon. So I said, you know what, can I, um, can I have a, a guitar amp and um, I just bring my guitar in out the car and see if I could just sit in this corner and just play along while you guys are building the song. So they looked at each other like, okay. They gave me an amp and I'm sitting in the corner and I'm playing some guitar. Man. And they're like, every five minutes, Nick Martinelli, the producer, you're going, put down the tape. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have some of that as well. I did that ding and ding and ding and ding and ding and ding. And he was like, hey, get this guy in there. Get him, get him on the tape. So then, then it was the background vocals. And um, I'd already sung the background vocals on the, the demo. But um, for some reason, Nikki said he didn't want no girls on the background vocals. So Jane is singing the... Um, backgrounds with me but she's really mixed down low especially in the um you never tell me you away she's in that part there but the actual hook is like no I want just Carl's voice and he, he he kept pushing me in the singing um area so then it went from bass to guitar to singing and then it was just like you know I was just built I didn't realize I was doing that but me and Steve Steve had this little thing going on where, you know, he would list nearly every single keyboard that he played. So if he played strings, he would say Steve Nichol, um, string ensemble, Oberheim synth, DX7, uh, acoustic piano, and all of this stuff, right? So I was like, when I read the back of the album, I was like, wow. Because all I saw Steve was doing was playing keyboards, right? I didn't know he was going to list every single one. So I was like, you know what, Carl? You must have played percussion, um, vocals, guitar, bass. You just put down bass. Right, <laughs> right. So, so from that point on, I was like, right, I'm going to make sure I make a point of whatever I do. I label it. I'll make sure that, you know, it's, it's out there because I think, you know, when you're doing a group thing, it's very easy for people to forget who did what. And so that's how it started to build up. But then it started to get a little bit, um, I won't say out of hand, but I think I became too much, for them, for Steve and them, like, because I was now, I went out and bought a drum machine and then I'd turn up with the whole song, you know, like <laughs> slow down. <laughs> but here's an idea. And I think, you know, at first, Steve and Jane, they'll be like, hmm, I don't know what we're going to do with this guy. But, you know, let's go along with it for a minute. So that was it, really. There was a lot of competition going on because Steve was very, very good bass player. 
He did the bass on Choose Me because I had the chords, I had the I had the bridge, I had the chorus, I had the verse. But you know, when Steve started playing that boom, 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 that was it, right? We was it, you know. And he really is a good bass player, so there was a lot of creativity going on. It weren't all me, you know. He's spurring mm. me on. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned Nikki quite a bit in your in your answer. Can you talk a bit about the chemistry? that you have with Nick Martinelli? Well, Nicky is a very um, unusual type of situation. It's not my type of guy, really. But when he's in the studio, he just commanded, um, he knew what he wanted to do. Um, he knew how he wanted to do it. He knew what musicians to use, and he was very definite. Um, so there was no drinking or smoking or anything like that in the studio. We worked from 11 to 7. And he was very strict, very relaxed. And he knew, like he planned every single day a month before. And so when we got there, we knew, he knew, right, we're doing vocals this day, we're doing drums that day, we're doing drum machines, we're doing, and it was really laid out. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Me and Nikki actually did fall out though when we changed studios. And we, because everything went digital halfway through the 80s. It wasn't very good for me because I had just become used to this new sound of being working in Philadelphia. And I was like, yeah, this is our sound, you know. And then next thing it was like, no, we're off to another studio. And this is a digital studio. And it's got, it was basically um, like first class. If you look at it like a plane, the this first studio was like coach. Now this was, we're in first class. But when I heard the actual sound of it, I was like, no, because really I'm a reggae guy. You know, that's where I come from. I'm Got you. from um, Hackney and I played in Scatter Rocks, Black Chalice, uh, a whole bunch of reggae groups that, you know, we deal with dubwise and we deal with the Shaka bass line and we deal with all of that. So the analog sound, and I think you might find a lot of reggae guys, they still, still don't like digital. That's right. They want to cut analog records. Mm. And I have to say, this is, you know, it sounds beautiful when they do. So I was trying to tell Nicky, you know, I don't like this sound. And he was like, you know, basically, I don't know. I don't think Nicky knew that I was the one of the main creators. In fact, I was, I would say, the one of the main guys that created, went to the studio with an idea and said, let's do this. Although Steve was a leader, Steve would be more, you know, I'll play, I'll play the chords. You know, he was comfortable doing that. Jane would be like, okay, once we've got something to move on, I'll write some lyrics, right? But I, I would be the guy that would turn up and say, I did this at home. Like, let's look into this. Sometimes I'd have to be careful about that because, um, as I said, you know, I'd be too much in it, you know, keyboards and all kinds of stuff, two, two verses and a chorus. <laughs> People would be like, well, you've written a song. Eh? <laughs> what, what is there for us to do? And this happened quite a lot in the later stages and led to the breakup. As long as I didn't say nothing to no one, it was fine. And I didn't. So Nikki, when I'm telling Nikki, I don't really like this sound, he's looking at me like, well, who, who the hell's this guy? Right, even he though, didn't know the levels. He didn't no, know. He, he didn't, didn't know. know, right? So <laughs> I think he said something like, um, I think you should concentrate on your bass playing. Wow. So um, we were doing this album. I think it was our third album, and it wasn't coming out right. That was the album that I fell out with him over. And, um, you know, it, it was taking a long time. We were using Fairlight synthesizers. Anyway, my suspicion, it wasn't going to be good. I didn't hear any hits. And I was getting nervous. So my face was, and, um, you know, so what happened was um, Nikki said, well, we ain't going to finish this album um, before Christmas. So why don't you go home, take a break. And when you come back, we'll finish. And when I went home, I played the album that we had recorded so far to certain people. And they, they agreed with me. Uh, my man, Erskine Thompson, he's, he's a big guy back in the day, promotion guy. He used to work with a group. And he said, listen, let me hear this record. And when he heard it, he didn't hear no hits. And he said, you guys just came off of hanging on a string. You know, this is not going to be good enough. And Nick um, Erskine would give it to you, you know, like real raw. So basically I went and hired some equipment and I did three songs and I went playing. I got a new drum machine, Lin 9000. So I, I had... Um, 
I had a written a song called Slow Down, and one called Johnny Broadhead, and then there was another one called Gonna Make You Mine. And they were just rough ideas. Now the, the Slow Down one was a reggae song. To be, believe it or not, wow. it was a reggae song. It started yeah. as a reggae song. Jeez. It started as a reggae tune, yeah. And I played it to, anyway, I, I did these three songs. Played them to Erskine. He said, yeah, when you get back, we got to record these. Played Nick Martinelli, Slow Down. And he said, that ain't reggae. So I was like, uh, are we about to have an argument? Because that's some reggae right there. So he was like, I'll tell you what you do. And this is some genius Nick Martinelli. He said, go home and record the song again with the Roland 808 and think of Kenny Burke's Give It All You Got. Hmm. So he's saying like, do it again as a slow song and put that bass line on it. So everyone's rocking on the bass line. A bit like Rick James would, you know? And that's exactly what I did. I went home and the next day I came back with the finished song. But it was really funny because when I went home, we, we had uh, equipment set up in our um, apartment and Jane was watching TV and Steve was in the back chatting and, you know, doing whatever. So I had to kind of pull all the equipment into the, uh, a little laundry room. And then I started to put together the beat, um, the 808 and then the bass line. And then I put the keyboards on. Uh, and I think the, the everyone else in the house, they weren't, in that conversation with myself and Nikki, they didn't know that Nikki had given me specific instructions. So I was on a mission, you know, to get this thing done. So uh, I'm doing all this stuff now. And then I've actually finished the song. Oh, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm singing the hook and I'm saying, slow down, cause I can see your feet slow. Down. And I'm like, no, that's not right. And someone said, um, I can't take the heat. I heard someone scream from another room. And then it was like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that could work. And then slowly but surely, they start coming in the little room. And we finished that song within an hour. Took it back to Nick Martinelli. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to record this in the basement studio, which is still analog. And so that song was... On that album was the only song recorded analog. And it's the best sounding song on that record. I think it's Zagora. I'm not sure. I think it's Zagora. So, yeah, I think he got me after a while. But it was a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, li- a, little, a little tussle. Yeah, yeah. There's a little tussle. I am... Every few months, there's this debate that happens online about sampling. Right. Is it an art? Is it stealing? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about sampling and what led you to sample, you know, hip hop acts, Eric B and Rakim and Marley Marl. Like, how do you feel about it now in relation to your career? Well, I, I'm a sampler. I have to admit, I think it brings back old music and I think it re-erects old music. I think the legal side of it, I think we need to, all right, let's talk about that because I think the legal side of it should really be a little more easily accessed like, I think we should be able to, when we make a song, like how, you know, you can say, I'm a blood donor. I think we should be able to say, I am actually uh, a sample donor. I am giving people permission to sample this song at a certain percentage. As long as they do that, I would like a certain percentage. Um, and all you got to do is go to a certain website and register. And then people have the song. I believe that that should really be made possible. But you see, the, the problem is that the music industry is a business of exploiting the music and the, the business side of the industry. I don't know if you know any industry people, the people that I know that work for record companies are actually living a better life than the musicians that are making the music. So when I make a music for a label, the, the label actually owns my music. If I want to sample James Brown, I have to, Talk to Polydor, um, not James, you know. And a, a lot of people get it wrong. They, they come to me and they say, Carl, you know, people from Brazil even, they say, Carl, I want to sample um, Hold Tight or Love Controversy. And they're asking me, and it's very embarrassing for me, but I do have to tell them it's not my, I don't have the rights. I do have some rights, but I don't have 
all the rights. And the main people who hold the rights are people that probably never even heard of me. They're in a building somewhere at Sony Music because my publisher was bought out by Sony. And, you know, they are the people that have access to the lawyers and have access to the corporate Western side of the way whole, the whole thing works. Nothing to do with me as a musician, even though I am the creator. So I, I think that has to change a little bit, but I don't know if it will. Because for me to give, um, artists would have to own a lot more of the music that they're making in order to give permission for people to sample. Because at the moment, most of the contracts are giving the rights of the music to the record label. And while the record label have it, it's a lawyer thing and hundreds of thousands of pounds get spent trying to clear it. And it becomes a really laborious process. And I, I wish that that wasn't the case. But that's the way they've set it up at the moment. I had a brief a brief experience with sampling. So um I did a one-off with EMI and they gave us carte blanche to use the KPM okay. music library. Mm. And I felt like a kid in a sweet shop. I was like, oh my God, this is like when Dela made three feet high and rising. You, right. you could sample anything yeah. and it was all go ahead. But when you see the splits, it was like, oh, so this person gets this, right. you get this. And it was the first time I ever saw it right. in, in a numerical sense. And I sat there and I thought, what if we didn't have... right? EMI saying you guys are good to go we'd have to go and find song rights uh this company this person would have to sign it off and it's it, I can only imagine how laborious mm -hmm. of a process it is and as a result we pretty much gone sample free but I since know. then we were like no we gotta stay away yeah. from these because people started to listen and think oh you've used that um someone's gonna come and find you so mm. I do yeah. have some idea of how stressful it can be oh yeah I mean I did an album in the 90s which didn't come out. And actually I lost my deal over it because they gave me some money to make an album and I made the album. And then they said, hold on, you've got samples on there. And in your contract, there is no provision for clearing samples. You are responsible for the samples. So then I had to go and take off all the samples and redo the records. And then it didn't sound the same. And it was just, oh, it was a very hard time for me going through that. It was really hard. But I know um, they can do better. They can do more to, to correct this. But at the moment, they have been on, uh, in the business of owning especially black music um, and um, musicians do not have any sort of way of coming back at them because we sign this contract and the contract basically puts you in your place. You know, you've signed the deal. So now we tell you to, win, to go and stand. You go and stand over there and we'll come over and deal with you when we're ready. And you better be happy that we do. So once you're in a situation like that, you know, it's like you don't really have any power. And that's the problem with it, because it's really all about the numbers in the end. And if you really look at the numbers in contracts, they don't really make a lot of numerical sense, really, not for the artists. And I do believe that that is one thing I would have liked to have been a part of a change. But I don't think there, you know, we can handle it by... Um, asking. <laughs> you have to literally change the, the way how the business is like Uber did with the taxi cabs. Right. You know, we have to come along with some kind of new vehicle that takes us down the road without maybe using major labels and stuff or, or make them sort of change the way that they're thinking because at the moment it's just exploitation. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. Makes sense. Is. Makes Absolutely. sense. Um, I just want to go to, I think it's 992 and forgive me if I'm wrong, uh, a little spice. Um, and and particularly the Gangstar remix. I just want to know how that came about oh, because yes. because yes. because you know Guru uh, may rest in peace and and Premier. I mean Premier is a god. Like you know we we how we revere you is how we revere Premier. Um, Absolutely. And so it's really interesting wow. how that song Thank came you. about. Um, and I'm not sure if you ever heard the sample flip of the same song by Camp Lowe, who put it on their legendary album too. It's a really good sample flip as well. No. Camp Lowe, oh, I think I did. Yeah, brilliant. I think I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But yeah, talk to us about how the Gangstar remix of, of A Little Spice came about. All right. So um, uh, do you remember earlier I was saying that there's this guy called Erskine Thompson? And this guy, he's a promotion man. Uh, he's dead now, you know, rest his soul. 
but um, he discovered us. He discovered, um, he didn't discover us. We was already on the label, but he saw something in us, you know. Um, he also found, um, discovered Maxi Priest, and he's a reggae guy. Okay. All right. So he was, I don't know if you heard that in the 70s, Bob Marley came to London and he put on a suit and went to the Savoy Hotel yeah. and had his locks and women was like Going mad. Diving in. Out. All of that. The original Michael Jackson. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and it was like, it caused such a stir, you know, because they'd never seen this this beautiful dread before like with this beautiful he had a, a, a Savoy Savile Row Savile Savile Row, Savile, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he went to the this um you know Savoy Hotel and, and it was just crazy anyway that was a PR stunt created by Erskine Thompson and he used to work at Island Records it was also a, a bad dude as well he wasn't a good dude all the way he was a bit of a scamster and um he would always come up with little marketing scams and he knew the business and he had a lot of um, um, executives around his finger. This guy, uh, after the band broke up, uh, I actually did an album called Look How Long. It's on my own. And I took it to Erskine. And Erskine, he sat there and he went, oh, my God, look at you. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you've done it, haven't you? you you've found a way to continue, even though the other guys have left. And I, 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 I need a couple of hours, right? Because I, I didn't think you'd be able to do this, right? But it's an amazing achievement and I've got some ideas for you. So then he comes back later and he says, do you remember in the 80s, in the 70s, there used to be a Trojan compilation called uh, Tighten Up? Tighten up, yes, yes. You guys did, vol- you did volume one as well, tighten up as well, right? That's what it was, yeah. yeah. But what it was, this tighten up used to be a Trojan label thing, and they used to put naked women in dolly mixtures. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen these albums. Like, it would be a whole bunch of dolly mixtures, and they'd put a naked woman in there, cover up all her bits, right? right? But they had a, a bit like um, uh, Ohio Players. Okay. Where they okay, had all right. Sexually provocative. Got it. Yeah, so um, well, what happened now, um, these albums, they were great, actually, you know, even without the cover, <laughs> right? They were they were brilliant. And um, so he said, you know what? Tighten up, loose ends. Let's do a tighten up record. And he, he, he was drumming on about this idea. Let's do this tighten up record, blah, 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 rah, rah, rah. it's going to be wicked, loose ends. Blah. And I didn't get it. I was like, hmm, okay. Well, at the time, I was struggling with this new record where the record label said, we're not going to pay for the, um, the samples. So I had to clear all these. I had a big job on my hand. But Erskine said, don't worry, leave it to me. I'll deal with it. I'm going to get um, PM Dawn, um, um, Premier, um, all these groups. Um, Frankie Knuckles you know, yeah, right. Yeah, all of these bands that are, and these great producers, yeah, like Frank and Knuckles, he was one of them. Um, Erskine knew them because he was a DJ, so he knew the guys to get. And so he went out and did this work all on his own, uh, with the record company's um, blessings, and did a remix album of all loose end songs. So when he said that Gangstar had done a mix, that's the first thing I want to listen to. Gangstar did a loose ends mix. And then I realized that these guys were fans. They they grew up on loose ends, right? So, yeah, uh, when I heard the Little Swice, I couldn't believe it, man. That is an amazing mix, I have to say. They did a, a great job there. But, yeah, it's all Erskine Thompson. He did all of that on his own. And then when he, 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 uh, he said, Carl, I need you to come and take a picture for the album cover. So uh, after we did the picture, I was like, well, you haven't really played me the rest of the tracks. He goes, don't worry, when you hear it, you know? And so when he played it to me and I heard the whole thing, I was, I was shocked. The Frankie Knuckles, Dave Morales, uh, I was PM Dawn. I was like, these are big names at the time, you know. So um, that was, that's how that came about, Erskine Thompson in the house. Rest in peace, Erskine Thompson. Yeah. Even though he might have been a, a, a bit of a, a scammer, yeah. 
Yeah. But, <laughs> but he made some things happen. He did. He did. He, he did. made some things happen. I was watching uh, a TV show mm. a few weeks ago called yeah. BMF. Okay. And there is a very important scene in there with the main antagonist, Lamar. Yeah. And he he um he commits a murder in the show, but in the background, yeah. you can't stop the rain. Yeah. Is playing. Are you aware of this? Yeah, I am aware of it. I gave clearance for the song to be used in 2019. But here's the thing about 2019. I um, contracted a cold and for some reason, the hospital thought it was bad enough to put me in a coma. So what happened was they put me in a coma for a couple of weeks and stuff and I came out of the coma and um, had to kind of, I realized when I came out of the coma, I wasn't quite the same person. I had pains everywhere and um, I couldn't spell. I couldn't add up. I couldn't do maths. Um, my missus was beating me at cards. And, um, you know, was, my wife beats me at cards all the time. <laughs> it happens. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. I mean, no, I mean, 21. I mean, I couldn't connect to 21. I was really bad. And my memory was funny because I won't say it had gone, but it's almost like it needed a bit of electric shock. So certain things would happen. Like I had this, um, I had this vintage bass in my, in my um, garage. I was tidying out the garage and I found this bass and I was like, what's this? And I opened it. It's basically the 17th wild bass ever made. And I was like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? You know, so I was really, like my memory was really shot. Um, so um, what, what happened was after that, I got a few phone calls from my lawyer to say, some people want to um, clear the song for synchronization. Um, I said, what song is it? And he said, I don't know, let me go back and check. So then he calls me back and he said, oh, I think it's You Can't Stop the Rain, funny enough. I was like, oh, okay, I got here. So that's that. My memory is not, you know, I've told, because my memory's still foggy. And then suddenly about, I think it was uh, September, October, one of my kids told me, Dad, your song is everywhere. I'm like, get out. <laughs> he was like, yeah. And people are doing memes and um, all this stuff. And I was like, no way. And I totally didn't believe him. Um, and then after a while, other people are now telling me, whoa, I think you need to check out, you know, your, your, your publisher and, you know, you might have some royalties coming to you and stuff. And I was like, really? And then I saw uh, people started sending me little bits and pieces of the actual part where Lamar is, <laughs> he's got the, the little... <laughs> yeah, freaky little scissors thing going on and he's you know gonna kill people and you know funny enough he actually uses the context in the right way because when we wrote that song that song is about karma and it's about not being able to stop you know when 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 you've done something wrong and you know the time comes when Hey, this is your time. You know, you can't stop the rain. That's really what we were talking about. Um, we're talking about death, but we didn't want to say death. We were talking about, you know, when when you've done something or you've caused uh, certain things to happen, or when naturally things are about to happen, there are certain things we can't control. And, and you know, it's it's true. You can't control everything, and so we 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 didn't want to say that. So we said you can't stop the rain. So. A few people have done it in the past and they, they've used it as different in a different way. Like I think Shaquille O'Neal said. As in King or yeah, R-E-I-G-N. -R there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that was a different angle. But this guy, he he kind of used it in that karma way. Mm. Um, but it's kind of sinister. I mean, I didn't think he would go that far. <laughs> Carl, I, I'd be honest with you, man. I was in Jamaica a couple of weeks ago and I was listening to that song on the balcony. I didn't know whether mm. to slow dance with my wife or sharpen a blade. <laughs> <laughs> the vibe of that song, oh, wow. it would always have the original meaning, but Lamar, right. and I think, it's, I think it's quite clever, Lamar and that whole show has introduced loose ends to an entirely new generation. 
Mm. Oh, so definitely. Now with the memes and all the pictures, even streaming service now, you can't stop the rain is the one that says popular tracks. It's the top now. Wow. Yeah. No way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, like I went on Tidal and the it, effects of that. Scene yeah, it's because of that. It's crazy. because of the impact of that show and that scene and 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 Lamar, oh. the guy who plays uh, um, Lamar, I think his name's Kofi. He's 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 from he's from England. He's like he's, he's British. British. No he's British. Yeah. I knew, it. I knew it. He's British. I seen him in something else. Yeah, he's really good. He stole the show, as far as I'm concerned. He stole the whole show. I saw him in something else yesterday, the uh, day before yesterday. But yeah, your Loose Ends is, is a new act for so many people now. Wow. Which is dope. That's just unbelievable. And you know, that's a good thing about music and art, is that it can come back. This is our, the musician's revenge, you know, is that we do get renaissance sometimes. We do be able to come back and capitalise on some of these things that are happening. If we can... Um, get away from the the, um, the corporate bad contracts. We we might be able to actually uh, monopo- monopolize yeah, yeah, yeah. on yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like this. I love that. I, just, I love yeah. that. Artists of Revenge is, is incredible, incredible. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I like that. The Musicians Revenge. Yeah, I love that. Talk about being approached for the D'Angelo remix. How did that happen? Oh, see now that was very interesting as well because what happened was um, I was trying to get a deal. And uh, I think it was Trevor Mad Hatter. That guy is amazing. I don't know if you've ever heard of Trevor Nelson. Trevor. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. yeah, so Trevor Nelson, I don't know what that guy has. Right? He just had a charm about him. He was, he had a job with Arista. Right. Yeah, so he's got a job that every uh, musician, you know, music man that I know wanted. And he was basically like, I don't know what they want me to do here. I'm not really feeling this. That was his whole demeanor. Oh, I don't know. The only good thing about it, Carl, is um, I get to work with some people that I like. Right? So they brought in this this record called Brand Sugar. And I, I really checked for this record. And the first thing I thought about was you. All right. So he said, come into the office and we'll talk about it. So he gives me the whole album on cassette. It was cassette back then and tells me to go away and listen to it. And I went away and listened to it. And i tell you what, I, I was blown away by that D'Angelo first album, uh, every single track. Um, and then, but I was a bit scared because I was like, well, what, what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> yeah, the guy's done everything already. So, um, yeah, he just said, do you. And he said, the guy's a fan. And to be honest, uh, actually, before that had happened, um, I have a friend called Angie, Angie Stone. Yes. And yeah, she's Angie Stone. Mate. Yeah. But when I saw Angie, she looked completely different. She was like really um almost uh overweight. Like, you know, she really like she came in a tracksuit top, huggy beer tracksuit, and you know, she came in work mode. You know, she came to London and she was like, you know, really, really not rough looking, but just not really on a star thing, right? More of a songwriter thing. And I was like, oh, okay, this girl, she's got a wicked voice and she's a rapper and everything. And I just left it at that. And then she gets hold of me and she says, she's uh, working with this guy who reminds her uh, a little bit of myself. And she didn't say his name or anything, right? But when I spoke to um, her next and I was telling her about this Arista thing that was going on with me, and she said, oh, that's my guy. So I was like, no way. She goes, yeah, that's the guy. I wrote them songs. So I'm like, no way. And it was like full sale cool, you know. Sometimes music industry is like that. But that's how yeah. that kind of came about. So all I could really do um, was do my versions of what he had done. And to be honest with you, I did not want to do a remix of Brown Sugar. It was just too good. Right. To me, it's like trying to mix Hanging on a String, you know, or... Um, outstanding by um, Gap, Band. Gap Band or, you know, some songs, you just leave them alone, you know, but he was like, no, you got to do it. So I, I just did a few versions, but that is a great artist right there. D'Angelo. Yeah. I love the album. We had um Higher on my, that was my first dance at my wedding. Really? Higher by D'Angelo. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a special album right there. Special. Yeah, that is wicked, wicked, wicked. So um, we will we'll wrap up very soon because um, we want to read respect for your yeah, time. So I, I want to ask about... Uh, so a lot of the songs 
that you've got you guys have done um have parallels to reggae where there's a message in it and and a lot of the music have that like when i listen to sweetest pain right, right. i i know i list the lyrics and it's some really you know it's dark it's it's she's in pain mm. however yeah. i want to dance yeah right? and i feel like yeah. even with don't be a fool you know, right. it has that parallel to reggae music, right? So Jacob Miller, okay. I always say this on the podcast, Jacob Miller is my favorite root singer, right? From Innocent, no right? So, you know, his his music, when he when you talk about, you know, uh, forward, you know, Jar Jar Children or Tenement Yard yeah. and what he's saying, but it make, it gives a vibe. And I just want yeah. to make the point, there's a little, I know there's a little sneak, might be a sneak diss maybe with the hidden meaning of Don't Be A Fool, but I also wanted to draw the parallel to reggae right, music right. because you were dread, right? You mentioned it before. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's very important that, and especially in, in UK music, we talk about black music and black culture. Yeah, reggae has definitely. played a massive part uh, in the foundation oh, of that. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Don't, yeah. Don't, don't be a fool. Must have been a great song to have made to make. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It wasn't a diss. Um, what happened with don't be a fool was um, when I split from the band and I could see uh, how our lives were going in two different, in different ways. Um, I, I, to this day, I do not know what happened with Jane and Steve to make them want to leave. I, and and I, I, to this day, I'm like, guys, what is going on? Um, and so I basically put a few s- s- lyrics together that were reflecting some of the things that I had seen that would have weren't there at the beginning. And um, and I think it was a way of saying, please don't throw your life away. You got so much talent. Yeah, that's really what it was. But yeah, I mean, you know, it was a, it was, a, it was heavy for me to to actually say that as well. Um, and and I didn't want to mention any names or point fingers. But yeah, I do come from reggae, and we do we are trying to make uh, a music with a message. We are trying to make, you know, and, and some of us like Femi Fem. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Femi Femme. Femi Femme, to me, I think he's made the best undercover black conscious record ever in apparently nothing. Uh, because if you listen to the lyric, what he's saying is, what have we learned from society, from what's happened? Apparently nothing. And, and you know, I, I actually thought, wow, what a statement. And so that spurred me on now to say things like hold tight, you know, and don't be a fool, um, stuff like that. Because, you know, you do have to hang on to your dreams in this business because there's a lot of dream killers out there as well, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the whole thing. But, you know, the funny story about um, don't be a fool is I used to have this genius keyboard player friend. Um, He's also died now. Um, But this guy is a character. He actually got into a fight with someone and the guy died. In a party in the 70s. Like they were rolling on the floor. People don't know what happens, but when he got up, the other guy didn't get up. And we don't know what happened to him, but um, I think it was self-defense. The guy might have underestimated him. And, you know, the guy lost his life in that fight. But this guy is a genius keyboard player. His name's Phil, Phil, what is it? Phil Linton. And um, this guy, oh my gosh. So genius, but it's very hard to work with. Very hard to for you to tell him that you've heard something that you want him to get involved in. He will do it for a second, and he's he's that that genius mind starts. Oh, maybe I can do this as well, and he'll put something else on it. And before you know it, he's gone somewhere else. I have actually left him working on a song, gone to the shop, and come back, and he's on a completely different song. Wow. And not only is he on a completely different song, but he's erased the one that you Oh, left. no. Oh, no. <laughs> right? So, yeah, he's a bit of a... Uh, so I thought he had... A, I had a session with him, and um, I thought, how am I going to do this now? My mum was trying to get me to come down and do some work, uh, moving stuff around, which she, she's a hoarder. She loves her things and doesn't want to throw anything away. So she she's telling me to come down and move it from one end of the room to the other. And I had the session at the same time. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put the DAT machine on and leave it recording. And I'm going to tell him when he comes, I'll be back in a minute. All right. All you got to do is sit in the studio and just play. So 
he went, what? He was these eyes. Well, yeah, oh, I could do anything I want. I was like, yeah, go ahead. So I went to my mom's, did my bit. When I came back, he had already left. And I said that that machine was still running. All right, so um, I started to listen to this, that machine there. And it was all this stuff, like real great piano playing and little funky bits. And then there was this little moment that went, dun 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 with the chord and everything. I was like, ooh, rewind. <laughs> and that little part there, I, did, I learned to play that. You know, that was it. So when I learned to play it now, I put together a beat underneath it and start putting the vocals together on it. And, uh, and even the change for the chorus, he had actually, he had done that. The change was actually him going into another idea. Right. But I thought, oh, stop it right there, because the first chord, first two chords sound great for a, a chorus. So that was the whole idea. So I built the whole idea up. Then I sent it to him, and I was like, Phil, remember that time you was in the studio? Check this out. So I played it to him, and he was like, hmm, sound like you own some royalties there, mate. <laughs> And because he'd killed someone, I was like, mm, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yep. You, you, yeah, you need to straighten that one out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. He ended up getting 25% of the record, wow. you know, that guy. He's, uh, but he was, it was worth it. Was, yeah, you know, he's great a, record. Yeah, great. I hear you. We're going to wrap up shortly, but we'd be uh, remiss if we don't ask, because so many of our listeners have asked us to ask you this. Mm. Talk about, it's a two-part question. Mm. The first part is working with Pete Rock, Oh. Soul Survivor, because once again, Ooh. it's 1998. It introduces you to a whole new audience of music fans. And I remember being in college in the music room, having the tape and it said featuring Carl McIntosh and Jane Eugene of Loose Ends. I'm like, oh my God, Pete Rock likes Loose Ends. Talk about that song. and the importance Yeah, of yeah, yeah. So Pete, um, he's uh, West Indian. I didn't realise this. <laughs> yeah, so it's so Chris. <laughs> Right. So I got to um, meet him through his music. Um, I like everything from the time he played that filler sample in um, um, what was the song he did? Um, Troy? Reminisce. Yeah. That's filler. Right. When I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, this guy is my hero. Right. So what happened now? I started to follow him and I thought it was some a God. You know, this, which really, you know, um, I don't want to use them words really, but he's up there in my estimation of great musicians and producers, you know? Same here. Yeah. So um, then what happened was Jane said to me that um, Pete wanted to work with us. And I was like, no way. What's the work of us? So she was like, yeah, yeah, he wants to meet you. So she said, come to New York. So we, um, so next thing I knew, uh, loud Records, That's I think right. it's Loud Records. That's it. They sent me a, um, a ticket and um, uh, said they and sent me a car to go to the airport. And I was on my way to New York. I get to New York now, and um, I was in a hotel for about a weekend. And then on the Monday, I was told to go to this Green Street Studios. I think it was called. And let me tell you, right, this place is like an old, beaten up, old. I don't know what it is like a like a warehouse or something right but sound oh my gosh it was hip-hop it is the sound of hip-hop and even the walks to the studio the backdrop of new york it was hip it was the golden era of hip-hop and when you're in there and you're seeing like uh black sheep and all, all of these people coming in there you know doing their stuff and there's this thing on the wall what had all the months bookings and it also had in red all the hip-hop artists that were having beef with each other wow oh yeah they had to have uh it's like you had squares and each square would have uh like say big daddy came so if big daddy came battled a rapper say krs1 um they would have krs1 booked in but they would actually say uh, I would have a little grid that said KRS-One, Big Daddy, they can't be booked on the same day. And so that was like, okay, I've never seen anything like that before. And it's very weird the way they had the engineers 
Now, the engineers are all white dudes, like really quiet white dudes that come in and work for three hours, no more. After three hours, if your session is for eight hours, they get up and they leave and someone else will come in and sit in. And while I was with Pete, about three engineers came in in that one day, right? And let me tell you, everyone was better than the last. And when I tell you, these guys were like unbelievable engineers. You see, over here, it's a rock and roll thing. Now, the system is rock and roll. And so you, you, your standard um, uh, qualified sound engineer is going to be, you know, a white guy that got brought up through rock and roll, um, you know, um, folk and, you know, westernized music. But in America, you have a guy, he looks completely the same, but, and he'll have his um, motorhead t-shirt on, but he'll be the best hip hop in engineer you've ever seen he knows how to work the sb 1200 and the mpcs and how to get the the snare drum the compression so that the snare is right there and the vocal is there and they got all of these different sciences that i have never ever seen nick martinelli or anyone like that use they were on that funk you know um so i was out there and i was just blown away by the green street um, the way they do their, their, their system and Pete Rock, let me just say that guy for, for every album, I think is about how hundred songs that are brilliant that he um, probably won't commit to the album. And I think uh, he'd done the album when we got out there and in order for us to take part, he just said, well, here's another 30 tracks, pick one. So he was playing these tracks and as he's playing them, I would sing something. Then he'd go, go in and sing that. Right. So I went in and I was thank you, Yeah, yeah, go in and sing that. And then that's how that came about because, you know, he just got so much music in from his mum's basement. Is it Mount Vernon? Yes, right. Mount Vernon. Yeah. Money earning Mount Vernon. <laughs> yep. Money earning. Yeah, so that was amazing. And even uh, the other day, I asked him if he would do something for this album. And he said, yes. He said, just say when. So I take that as a yes. So I'm going to, um, I, I guess it's going to be his music and I'll just sing over it. Yeah, because, you know, okay. I don't, that's the key. Right? Yeah. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I've got yeah. one last question okay. to ask you. And this is from a friend of the show. His name is DJ Snips. He's a massive fan of yours. Like, he loves you. He's asked, he said that um, recently Questlove from The Roots mm. credited you and Omar oh. as the creators of Neo Soul. Wow, no way. And that it sounds like that's the first time you're hearing this. Yeah, it How is. do you feel about praise oh, like that? Uh, I just wish my pocket had the same amount of money in it, man. <laughs> Word, that is that. Yo, that word is bond, like they would say back in the day. I will tell you that right now. If my, if my pocket was like that, like heavy like that, with the comp as much as the compliments are coming, I would be like, yes. But at the moment, you know, um, it's hard out here. You know, we got to do, you know, shows and we got to do our promotion and we got, you know, just to get your money up, you got to do a whole ton of work. But I, I'll take that. If I, I think, um, Unintentionally, um, when I did my Look How Long album, there were some cuts on there that you could say, yeah, that was probably, uh, without, without knowing it, it was just, you know, just something that I like doing. And I think Omar's the same. It's reggae, you know, it's not very hard. It's not a lot of stuff. Like when we were in Lucens, there'd be a lot of keyboards and a lot of layers, but reggae you know, Omar still kept it true. It's drums, bass, guitar, keyboards, maybe four people on the track. And the, the nucleus is a bit like Sly and Robbie. And I learned from Sly because um, Sly used to come to my house um, with Erskine Thompson. Wow. Right? Yeah. And Sly, he explained that a groove is like a diamond. Um, when you spin it, it should spin and it should balance. And when you're making your songs, your, your main job as, as a songwriter, musician, producer is to keep that spin going, that balance. Don't put too much in. If you put too much in, 
it goes one way or it goes the other and it stops spinning. It's, it loses its balance. So don't put too much. And if you listen to Sly and Robbie, listen to Omar, if you listen to some of the stuff that I did on that Luke Long album, you'll hear it's very basic, especially the song called Don't You Ever. Don't You Ever Try to Change Me. It's like Rhodes, bass, drums. And that's it. Even though I'm a guitar player and I, you know, go in there and do a lot of guitar bits. It's not about that. It's more about just the vibe. And I hear it in Omar's music. Matter of fact, me and Omar are going to be singing together. next. I think it's week after next, after Christmas. Um, we're going to do, he's going to do one of my songs. I'm going to do one of his songs at, at Boysdale. So, you know, brothers, brothers in arms, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that I, I'm, I, I'll take that, you know, hopefully the, um, I can monopolize on the popularity that we're getting from the BMF and, and uh, when my new single comes out, which is called Magic Zone, comes out on Digital Jukebox Records and it's going to be coming out probably in the next eight weeks, probably February, you should start hearing it. Okay. So yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> nah, you, 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 are a, you are an absolute legend. You know, Summit and I, when we do this show, it's to tell stories and fill in the gaps in history. And in our knowledge, and um, I don't know if you notice, when you're talking, we just listen because we're here to learn as well. But what you have done in music and the value that you have added to our lives, hmm. not what? just as music fans, but as people. Really? I think, yeah, really. How to make songs, yeah. man. How to make songs. Like, there's a standard. Really? There's a standard, okay. right? And you, you yeah. understand we're music people. So we may be journalists as well, right. but we also love music because yeah. we understand how, okay, this bass line comes in here and the experimentation with sounds that you did with loose ends as well. Not even just the Neo Soul stuff you did yourself, but all of that right, is right. important to a grounding of going, this is how hip music or good yeah. music should sound. Mm. And we're about legacy. And what you have left is, an, you've left a ton of legacy for, wow, for, for the people so to take away. You know what? So. Even just speaking to the, the, the American audiences and the... Yeah. The worldwide audience, when I go to the States and people talk about loose ends, I feel a sense of pride. Oh, wow. <laughs> because I'm like, they come from where I'm from. Oftentimes right. when you're growing up in hip hop in the 80s and 90s, we're right. looking over there. Our heroes were MC Hammer and all those people. Yeah, now, yeah. Now, he yeah. they have heroes that come from our neck of the woods. Yeah. You know, roses grow from concrete. And um, you're, you're one of those roses, man. And we, we wow. love you. When, when Summit told me we're going to speak to Carl McIntosh, I was like, listen. I had to go deep in the archive. I had to light candles, levitate, <laughs> all of that. All of that. It's too, too kind. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate you. You are an absolute legend in living form. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. And stay safe and look after your health. And we, man, we love you, bro. We love you. Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. This, is, this has been enjoyable for me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. A big thank you to to Carl. I know we 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 started the conversation going. Do you want to call? Do you want us to call you Mister Macintosh? Like, no, no, no. Call me Carl. Yeah, because some people might feel you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to be too familiar with your OGs. Yeah, yeah. yeah Even yeah. though he said we can call him Carl, he's still Mister Macintosh. To us, he's yeah, still yeah, Mister yeah. Macintosh. Mr. Mac that's, Mr. How, that's how that's how I approached him in in uh, in the beginning. You Mr. have Macintosh. to. I, I I'm disrespecting his name like that. Of course not, um, bro. No. I realized you know after talking mm. to him, I don't mm. know nothing. You know this. <laughs> I know nothing. No, I'm being honest with you. I know nothing. Nothing. It's true. It's true. The life experience that he has, and also the music stuff. He. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a musician by any stretch of imagination, right? But the life experience he has, man. I want to be. I want to be like Carl when I grow up. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, you get that through living. Yeah, he's lived. You get, you he's get that lived through living. Did you hear how excited he he still is when he talks about music? Like yeah. talking about the SP twelve hundred. He sounded like a kid. His voice got all high pitched. He sounded like Sheik Luch. I'm just like, but. But that's because that's amazing yeah, to me. But that's because he studied it. Yeah, he studied the music. Life work. Yeah, he studied different genres of music. He was programming. I think he had the MPC sixty when he like back in the day. Like he was really on it. Yeah, before. yeah. I think um, look how long. I remember we spoke to Scott Free, and he said that album is the reason why he tried to sign Carl McIntosh to Loud Records, right? Because he said it was the first time he had heard R and B with the hip hop style drum programming, right. So yeah, he he was the one who put me onto that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super I'm super super glad, and I can't wait for new music, man. That I'm definitely buying that. If yeah, it comes me out too. In February, I'm I'm buying that. That would be great. But you know, we mentioned De La Soul in the episode. De La Soul sample loose ends, bro. Foxy Brown, come on, man. Jazzo, you know, Jazzo, Alchemist. You know, new edition. Tighten up. We talked about the We talked about tighten up volumes with the the Trojan ones, but they did a song called Tighten Up. They they sampled Slow Down. So even um in the background, I don't know if I, yeah, I still have it. The aftermath. 
the after Dr. Dre sampled loose ends. Bro, they're like they're legends, bruv. They're legends, bruv. And as with as with uh, you know, a lot of people from here, they got a lot of love abroad before they got it here, which is which is mm. life. Mm-mm. But I think the world is smaller because of internet and streaming and you know, loose ends are a new act to to so many new people. So that legacy is just gonna continue and I'm here for it. Absolutely, absolutely. But no, thank you so much to, to Carl McIntosh for joining us on our first episode of 2022. We've got a lot of things coming up this year. We've already announced uh, uh, one of the series that we'll be doing next year, the T-O-N-Y, Top of New York, Capone Noriega, The Making of the War Report. Um, listen, I have the actual factual by my side, so it's going to be incredible. Bro. Regardless. You T-O-N-Y. Just have to, you just gotta, listen, you, listen, you see that song yet? <laughs> if I was a criminal... <laughs> Please don't be a criminal. I'm not going to be a criminal, but if I was, I would probably commit. Um, sorry, I would probably commit acts of criminality to that album and go home to my wife and kids. That's I'm not endorsing that whatsoever. Don't so. endorse it. But no, it's a great album. It's a great album. We're going to talk about it. And what I'm really looking forward to is not just getting into the music, but what we're going to give people is just look into the social, economic, and political climate of the time that Correct. makes the War Report what it is. Correct. Looking Correct. forward Absolutely. to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you can follow us on social media at Break the Atoms, Twitter and Instagram. Chris's handle is at I'm Kinetic. Mine is at Hip Hop Chronicle. We'll be back with another episode next week. But until then, peace. Peace.